Well, I do want to welcome everyone to Pit Stop. It's your fortnightly midweek rest area to refuel your drive. I'm Karen Cummins. I'm an audiobook narrator, and I'm the chief cartographer for NarratorsRoadmap.com, and I'm your host for Pit Stop. And with me in the co-pilot seat is my lovely friend and award-winning audiobook narrator, Anne Flosnick. She hosts the Narrator Uplift Show here on Clubhouse. How are you today, Anne? Great. Happy to be here. Well, I am so glad you are. Every other Wednesday, audiobook narrators who do more than narrate pull into the pit stop. They're sure to inspire you to follow your interests and use all of your talents and gifts. I want to let everyone know we're recording this conversation so you'll be able to re-listen or catch parts you missed. And do feel free to comment in the chat and raise your hand in the app if you want to be part of the conversation because we'd love to hear from you. And I just thank everyone so much for joining us this afternoon. And I'm especially excited to welcome today Travis Baldry to the pit stop. Travis is a New York Times bestselling author, and he's also a full-time audiobook narrator who's lent his voice to hundreds of stories. Before that, he spent decades designing and building video games like Torchlight, Rebel Galaxy, and Fate. He lives in the Pacific Northwest with his very patient family and their small, nervous dog. So hello, Travis. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Hello, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. You know, as a dog lover, I have to ask about the small, nervous dog. What kind of dog is this? Well, we think that she's some sort of rat terrier dachshund mix. She's a rescue. Um, mm. And uh, I think you combine both of those dogs and you probably get like a perfect storm of barking at the door, but not being able to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, and probably on constant CSI of squirrel chipmunk and uh Chipmunk squirrel investigation. <laughs> She's a pretty good lap dog, though. You know, she really doesn't like to be anywhere but the couch most of the time. So, well, and I know, and even from that description, but uh, just from what I've seen of things you've posted in the Facebook groups for narrators, that I, I know about your background. I know a little bit about your background in games. It seems like you were a game developer for twenty years. Are you still developing games, or is that no, all in your not past? really? I think I've basically retired. I thought I might have some vague inkling that I wanted to go back, but it just never materialized, not for a nanosecond. So um, I think I wrote my last line of code a couple years ago as I was still kind of, I was making the switch to full-time narrating, and I just kind of have never looked back. Because <laughs> that's so interesting because, you know, for so many people, game development would be the ideal job. They're, you know, that would be like the dream job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's like narrating, you know, everything's got multiple sides to it, right? You, you like, lots of people like games, but making them is nowhere near the same. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's challenges to every industry. Um, it's a really young industry. It's not a very diverse industry. Um, and it's a hard industry that moves very, very fast, requires a lot of time, um, a lot of blood, and the outcome is usually in doubt. <laughs> Sometimes that sounds like narration. <laughs> so one of the nice things is that when you, you know, there's a real contrast to like shipping something in, as a game and shipping something as a narrator. When you make a project as a game, it's usually the product of years and millions of dollars. And maybe the world has moved on by the time you actually get around to shipping it. And once you do, you're not really done because people want you to change it once you've finished it oh, it doesn't work on this machine, or I didn't like this, or I, I found this bug, or, or whatever. And so then you go through this post-release period of addressing people's grievances. <laughs> um, and narration doesn't, doesn't work like that. You start a project, you have a reasonably good idea of when you will get done. Like, we all know kind of our, you know, what we can get done in a day. Unless you get a cold, you, you know this is going to take me X days. You ship it, you finish it, it goes out into the world. And you kind of dust your hand off and you're done. There's nothing else to do. And if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, maybe they give you a negative review and then they get on with their lives, which could not be more different from the experience of making games. You, well, they may have grievances, but you don't have to address them. You don't have to address them. That, it doesn't have the same um, expectation that, you know, it's if you don't like a book or you don't like an audio book, you don't demand that someone make a new ending. You know, it's just... It is what it is. It's a completed piece of art. You evaluate it on its merits and you move on with your life. The expectation in the audience 
um, relationship are just super different. Also, I think it's hard to overstate the fact that if you're listening to audiobooks or you're reading books, you're a book person. And I think book people overall are just good people. And generally, if you read, there's a certain like baseline amount of empathy that you develop as a person if you're a constant reader because you're reading about other people's lives and relating to other people. You know, it's just, I think it's kind of the price of entry. So how did you move from game development to audiobook narration? Um, I started doing narration on the side on ACX as a hobby. Um, my kids didn't need me to read to them anymore, and I had some of the equipment. I had assembled it for doing VO work for games so I didn't have to rent studio time. Um, and I stumbled across ACX, and I was already a fan of audiobooks, so I started doing it, and I discovered that I liked it. So I just kept doing it on the side. And then there came a point where I just decided, you know what, I like doing this more, and I can do this as an actual full-time job, so I'm just going to retire from games and switch. I mean, that sounds so easy, but I, I know there's a lot <laughs> more to it than that. But it was the process of years. I mean, I think it took me, I feel like it took me at least four years to get to that point. Um, some of it is just uh, having enough ongoing work and feeling like, feeling confident that you know what you're doing and that you can schedule the work out. And, and, and the other is deciding to actually sunset what you decided to do with your life. You know, you have a lot of inertia after a couple of decades. It's like, I, I invested all this time and energy being good at this. Do I really want to switch? <laughs> um, yeah. I but, mean, that seems like a really hard decision to come to. And it's a, yeah, it's once I had made the decision, I didn't feel bad about it at all, but there's a certain amount of, especially if you've got, if I'm married, I've got kids, you know, there's, you know, you, you're not just balancing your own life. You're balancing the livelihoods of people that, you know, are close to you. So there's definitely some friction in doing that. But of course, I, you know, I have to agree with your approach of staying with one foot in games and the other foot in audiobooks until you could just totally leap. It's kind of like yeah. a ship leaving the dock. You know, you, mm -hmm. you've got one foot there and one in the direction you want to go. And then finally the ship takes off and you just got to go with it. I, I'm, I mean, I'm a fairly risk-averse person. I like to feel reasonably assured that what I'm going to do is going to work and make sense. And I think, as with most things, there's a point where you can kind of feel the plane starting to take off, the wheels are starting to leave the pavement. You're like, yes, this will work, and this is fine. I, I have a good understanding of how, of how I can do this job, how, how much people want me to do this job, what kind of money I can make, and um, how sustainable it is. And once you kind of have a, a good feeling for that and you're comfortable with it, it makes it a lot easier to make kind of that switch. Have you been narrating the whole time on Discord? or is Because it seems like Discord is something really known to the game world. And I know some narrators are doing it. Is uh -huh. this something that you started early on or is it something it that not. came later? I came to it late. Um, I think the real pioneers for that were Andy Parsnow and um, I feel like there was somebody else who was definitely uh, uh, Sound Booth Theater were both doing Discord. I only started doing it after COVID hit because the world suddenly got a lot lonelier. Mm. <laughs> um, but I pretty quickly discovered that the real value for me wasn't just like having people around. It was having treating it like an office where I had hours that I was expected to be in there. And it kept me from just working at bizarre hours of the day. It, it increased my, my, my norm, my regu the regularity of my production and my output overall, just to say, here's my hours, I'm in the booth, and I do it and I get out and I'm done. And there's just this very mild pressure of knowing that someone could pop in at any second or is there right now when you go out to get a snack. Um, I... <laughs> And see, I've not been on Discord, but I, do they actually communicate with you while you're doing this? They do uh, via text. So okay. the way that I have it set up is I have a channel that's my audio channel. It's also got videos. So they can see me and hear what I'm doing. Um, and I can see it on a little iPad mini next to my script. I can see all of the text chat that's associated with that. So I have regular people that hang out all the time. I announce when I'm going to do stuff. I keep people updated on books and they can text and <laughs> animated gift me all they want. And then I respond <laughs> to them in audio. Because if you respond in audio, then that stops the flow of the narration. For me, it just doesn't matter. I mean, I, I do it on a punch, you know, I'll like, mm -hmm. you know, if it's a punch and I feel good, I'll just say, okay, I'll respond. And then I get right back to it. But I don't, in general, I don't have a big issue of like staying in a flow state to narrate. 
um, for the same reason that punch and roll isn't like doesn't really like disengage me. A lot of people feel like they they need to just keep going and they can't have anything interrupt them and it really bumps them out. I'd have, I've never had that big of a problem getting back into the flow. So it, and again, I can ignore it all I want. There's no requirement for me to respond and people fully understand that if I'm in the middle of something, I might not. So there's not, there's not a huge amount of pressure. And it's interesting to me that you started with ACX and now you have become such a fan favorite and you do so much work with Podium Audio that they've hired you to be one of the initial people in their audio collab. And when I read the press release, I thought, well, that's fantastic that an audio publisher is doing that. But basically they were telling the world that they thought they could keep you busy enough that they want to have some kind of, it's, I guess, not totally exclusive. I guess you do. No, not totally exclusive at all. So I have a kind of an odd setup with Audio Collab too. I don't use most of the services that they do. Um, my agreement is really I will guarantee them this many hours a year for X years. Um, and that's it. They don't schedule for me or do anything else for me. So I was already pre-scheduling with them over years anyway. So honestly, nothing changed. <laughs> but that's... You know, that's really exciting in an age where AI seems to be creeping in on more and more people. I read Mm -hmm. more and more narrators who are worried about this coming and and people even now saying, oh, I'm in the longest dry spell I've ever had. So to to know there's a publisher out there that is actually proactively scheduling narrators into the future, that's really, I think, a very hopeful thing for all of us. Yeah, I, I really like working with Podium. They care about their books. They're, they will actually edit their books, you know, instead of just pulling things from Royal Road or whatever, they'll actually do real editing passes on them. Um, they're deliberate about their choices. Um, it's not quite so much of a shotgun approach, which sometimes happen at some publishers. And uh, I really, I just think that people are lovely to work with. So I really like working with Podium. I also work with a lot of other kind of like small and mid presses, and I do some stuff with Audible Studios and, and what have you. Um and uh, all of them seem to be pretty focused on actual narrators. And a lot of this probably has to do with the kind of genres I do. They're all very character heavy. Um, and um, I, I really don't do nonfiction at all. So there's like, they already have kind of a focus on things that would be very difficult to do with AI anyway. Unless you're planning to go through and manually tag all the dwarfs lines. Um, the Maybe that won't be the case in the future, but at present, it feels somewhat sequestered. Um, so it I, seems like most of your work is sci-fi fantasy, is that right? Yeah, I do a lot of sci-fi fantasy, and I do a lot of game-lit and lit RPG specifically, the drowning in it. So um, I have just an unbelievable amount of that. One of, the, one of the phenomenons that's happened within the last year and a half is that if you're not familiar with it, there is a site called Royal Road where people write ongoing web serials. Um, these are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chapters, millions of words that they write serially, and they have patrons, and they're releasing like a chapter every couple of days. Um, and they've started basically harvesting these books, converting them into Amazon books, and then removing those chapters from online publication and then they'll do an editing pass and they'll get audiobooks made and they're massive and these are like 20 25 30 hour books wow um but they'll release four or five of those in a year because they've already been pre-written so mm-hmm. there's this sort of gold rush of harvesting these and getting them out there that is just a massive amount of work and also the series tend to not end <laughs> because <laughs> they're invested in maintaining their their patrons mm-hmm. so they're they're generally ongoing so it's a huge amount of content that's being with an audience that wants audio uh that's just kind of ongoing and also pretty rapidly locks up your schedule because if people are releasing five 25 30 hour books a year in their series and they're doing it every year for four years that's a lot of audio to produce you know i've i've had books last year where i think i did like a hundred and 160, 170 hours just for one series. And that series is nowhere near done. Um, But I have multiples of those because it's just such a genre staple at present. So it requires a lot of pre-scheduling because unlike 
kind of what people are used to, where people write a book and they put it out, and then someday they're going to finish the sequel. All the sequels are lined up. <laughs> mm. And these are solo narrations more than multicast, or is they that tend changing? to be solos. Occasionally, they'll do a duel, um, but they tend to be solos. And I, I, the amount of effort and money required in making one of these multicast, given the length they are, would I think be prohibitive. And it would also be time prohibitive, given the rate that they want to release them. Um, that's not always the case, but in general, I think that's one of the reasons that they're probably going to stay primarily solo narrator. Are these all American things, Travis? No, or, no, no. 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 Um, there are, um, there's plenty of writers in other countries. Also, there's lots of translations. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of web serials originally are from China or Korea or Russia and oh. have been translated. Um, but there's also tons that are coming out of the U.S. and the U.K., um, it's just a, it's just a vast quantity of words. Um, some of these series, he, he who fights with monsters is an example, which is, I think regularly hits number one on Amazon. Um, primal hunters, another one regularly, really high on Amazon. These they're, they're really popular. Mm. Um, they're also because of their size and because of the Amazon audible credit system, there's a lot of perceived value from listeners. Because people have this idea of value for credit. Mm -hmm. One credit and I yeah. get 30 hours of audio? Heck yes, that's what I'm going to spend my credit on. So yeah. there has been also, in conjunction with this, even for books that aren't released serially, there has been a massive push over the last year, year and a half, to have all of the books tip over the 20-hour mark. Mm -hmm. Which means most books are 210, 220, 230,000 words plus. Because, I'm getting tired just hearing that. Right. Because as a as an audio as a rights holder, you get about two dollars more per audiobook if that happens. So if you're regularly writing pretty long books, you want to make sure they pass over that twenty hour mark because it's real money because you don't get to set the price. And because Audible's credit system isn't more granular than it is. So it's something I, I would say that about two years ago, my average book link was maybe eight or nine hours. Now it's probably more like 16 to 18. Wow. Mm. Um, and that shift happened over like a period of about a year and a half. <laughs> Gosh. And that's probably a good segue to my next question because you've written this fantastic book by all accounts called Legends and Lattes that it has, I mean... It has won awards, and it's up for a Nebula Award for Best Novel this weekend. So we'll be crossing our fingers for that you're winning on that. But, I mean, people love this book. They love it in print. They love it in audio. And I'm wondering, given the time that you're spending in the booth narrating other people's words, how are you finding time to write your own? <laughs> well, that's been an interesting challenge over the last year and a half. Um so the F Legends and Lattes was written during National Novel Writing Month. So I wrote it in the evenings in my booth. So I would work and, for the and, day, go and to and dinner. I'm, I'm sorry oh. to interrupt, but backing up even before that, what made you want to write a book? Um, I mean, I've wanted to write a book for a long time. I've tried any number of times. If you're not aware of what National Novel Writing Month is, every November for the month of November, there's basically a, a national – it's not really a competition. Everybody just tries to egg each other on. It's a it's a an event where you try and write a novel in the month of November, which means you I think you have to clear fifty thousand words or something to be to qualify as a novel. Um, and I've tried to do this any number of times, and I have failed every time. Um, and I always tried to do it by the seat of my pants. But uh, in twenty one, um, Avon Shore, fellow narrator, some of you may know Avon, she's awesome. Um, she convinced me to do it again. And we were writing buddies, and we both completed our books in November. And that's what Legends and Lattes is. It's my book from November. So wouldn't have done it without Avon. Um, it's also the first time I ever outlined a novel because <laughs> I was sure I could just make it happen, and apparently I can't. I have to outline. <laughs> um, so I – and then I also I, I chose to do something that was um, more reasonable in scope than what I had tried before. So it's not a particularly complicated novel, and I really didn't expect anything much to come of it, except I was happy that I got done. Um, and uh, it was middle of COVID, and so I just wrote something that I wanted, which was something to make me feel better. <laughs> oh. Yeah, because it's it's described as uh, – I had this right in front of me. I have so many notes. It's 
the I know it's the low stakes high high oh. fantasy low stakes. Thank you. <laughs> and people kind of stapled. Uh, I have so the, many notes in front of me. I'm sorry. Here it is: high fantasy and low stakes. <laughs> people have kind of put like a, a label on the genres, calling it like cozy fantasy, which I think has existed for a long time. I mean, I think oh, every Studio Ghibli movie ever made is cozy. I think Terry Pratchett is Diana Wynne Jones, lots of other stuff, but. Um, I think it just turned out that everybody wanted that kind of thing right now for the same reasons that I did. Um, Notably, this book is absolutely nothing like what people hire me to read. (laughs) Mm. Um, I wish people hired me to read this kind of book, which is part of the reason, I guess, that I wrote it. I really like, I like fantasy romance. I like cozy mysteries. I like, I like stuff that makes me feel good after I've read it and that doesn't have, that doesn't last for 30 hours. I like a (laughs) succinct story that gets to the point and, and, and comes to an end. I really like that, but I don't get much of that. And they don't cast a lot of people who sound like me to read fantasy romance or cozy mystery either. <laughs> it's just not, it's not a genre staple. So um, I wrote what I wanted to read, but nobody was going to let me read. And what are you kind of, is it fighting? There's a lot of fighting goes on in what you primarily read, Travis? Or It's usually just very, lots of very um, high stakes adventure stuff. Um, it's almost always got a male protagonist. Um, and there's usually probably some snarky side character, the comic relief. <laughs> and there's generally a wide array of creatures of various types oh. and, mm-hmm. and um, world-ending stakes. And, um, uh, and also tend to, they tend to not end. <laughs> they tend to go and go and go and go because people want long series and they want long mm-hmm. books, which mm-hmm. is just not my – that's not my personal preference. I like – I, brevity is the soul of wit and all that. Right, right. That's interesting. But it does sound like fun. It can be. It can be. I get some really great books. I get some really mm-hmm. fabulous books. Um, but I like variety too. I, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, my my reading becomes largely dominated by what people hire me to read because I'm mm-hmm. narrating almost every day. So I have very little time to like read. I don't know. Maybe the rest of you have the same experience. It's hard mm-hmm. to carve out time for reading what you want to read. Yeah. When you've got something somebody's paying you to read with a tight schedule. Um, so I read a lot of novellas. But I also, you know, I I would love to get more variety into what I'm narrating because I like that variety just for myself. Yes, indeed. Well, and so then you wrote this during novel writing, November Novel Writing Month, and you thought, I like this and I want to publish it. And I know that you you've shared all you learned in your publishing journey with your self-published book launch A to Z. And I've linked to that on my audiobook resources for authors. And you you go through so much. And I, and I loved how you said at the beginning, like you kind of compared it to games. Like people would come to you when they wanted to write a game back in your game development days. And they'd have some big, you know, fantasy world like you're just talking about with audiobooks. And you'd be like, no, can you write Tetris? Because that's what you need to start with is something that's scaled down, easy to understand, and that you can yeah. fully articulate. And and you've always been very generous to share your knowledge and your skills because I know you did the Adobe Audition punch and roll feature, which was such a godsend to people. But you published – you decided to publish this book, and, and thank you for sharing all your steps with it. But there's a lot to it. And so – you know, talk us through that. What made you decide, yeah, it's good enough, I'm going to publish? And mm-hmm. and then the success, the, the crazy success, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just for a debut novel, it seems like oh, it's ridiculous. Mean, you've, you've obviously hit it out of the park. It's, it's and obviously I, it's I would ridiculous. think it's probably ex- excelled uh, way past what you thought it might do. Yeah, I didn't expect anything. So um, I published it largely because I just wanted to go through the process because I work with so many authors at this point. And I've seen what they go through from the other side. Mm-hmm. But I like to learn things. And I figured I got it done. And there was no real barrier to publishing it. So I might as well learn these steps and do it. And treat it like I was doing it professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of experience shipping products and commissioning art and doing, you know, at least adjacent sort of tasks. So I thought I would do it. And I just – I 
so I did it largely just to do it, to publish it. And then I wanted to be able to go to my local bookstore and say, hey, could you order one copy? And so I could take a picture on the on the bookshelf because that'll be cool. Um, but that was really the extent of my ambition. I really did not expect anybody to really, <laughs> unless I asked them to read it. So um, everything after that was definitely unexpected. Um, and um, I, I certainly couldn't have predicted it. I I think that I only have a marginal amount of responsibility for it because I think a lot of it is just fortuitous timing. And um, there's, there's just a, there's a huge component in, of luck and happenstance to anything like that. I did, I think I wrote a solid book. I think I didn't drop the ball, but that doesn't, that only gets you so far, which I think as narrators, we often see, right? You read a book and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the best book I have ever read. And somehow it seems not to find its audience and you're just kind of taken aback, like, Okay. I read this book that was terrible and everybody loves it. But then I read this amazing book and nobody seems to want to pick it up and you just yeah. can't figure out why. So there's just, there's a lot of unknowns and good fortune to anything happening. Um, but did, did you release the audio book concurrently with I did. the Kindle version? I did because it was and easy to do. how did it feel to narrate your own book? Were you like other authors like, oh, why did I say that? And no, it was the easiest to narration I'd ever done. Oh. It was the easiest narration I've ever done. It was really pleasant. It was like dancing. Um, I don't know what your experience is, but mine is that um, when I'm narrating, the closer I am to being on the same wavelength as the author, the easier it is for me to narrate. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's certain authors where I'm always transposing two words. The sentence yes. means the same thing, but I'm always mm-hmm. transposing them because my mind is just wired a little bit different. Yeah. Or I, you know, they'll have certain things, how they'll use a comma and how they'll break the pace of a sentence just is not my first instinct. So I'm mm-hmm. always subverting my instincts to read it the way that I need to read it for them. But for yourself, it's written the way that you would <laughs> you would read it. So you just don't have that leap to make. I already know what every character sounds like. I know what every, how everything is pronounced. I know the tone that's intended. You know, I don't have to find the author's truth. It's just right there. So, um, Did you read it aloud as you were writing it? I didn't, but I have found after narrating thousands of hours of stuff that I hear my voice in my head while I'm reading anyway. Mm-hmm. So when I'm writing, I'm basically already pre-narrating it out loud. Yeah. Um, again, I don't know if this is everybody else's experience, but when I'm reading anything right now, I know how it will sound aloud if mm-hmm. I were to say it because I'm mm-hmm. comfortable with my voice at this point. I'm comfortable with what I, what I would do. And your brain gets rewired, yeah. I think, so mm-hmm. that as you're reading text, you've got this superpower that other authors don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of authors say the best way to edit your work is to read it out loud to yourself. I don't have to do that because mm-hmm. I know exactly what it sounds like when it's read aloud, yeah. which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and yeah. why did you decide to let Macmillan Audio publish the audio instead of you? Did instead I did self-publish it? it first. I self-published oh, okay. it first. So everything was self-published first. I put it up on Amazon. I went through ACX. I had it simultaneous released or close to. Um, I got it in bookstores through Ingram Spark. I I did the whole thing myself, and it ran that way for several months. So I did not have any plans to go to Macmillan or anybody else. Um, and I didn't have any plans to have it um, traditionally published. But after it was published, um, it did really well. <laughs> yeah. um, and it kind of virally spread on BookTok and BookTube and Twitter and everything else. And booksellers were hand-selling it. And I, I just can't take any credit for any of this. This happened really organically. And it was other people, other people's kindness that made that happen. Um, but after... I think this is happening more and more often. I had three agents approach me after that. Oh. And I think a lot of them are are both publishers and agents are using BookTube and BookTok as kind of a way to take the temperature on indie released books mm-hmm. and find the ones that they want to try and capture for conversion to traditional because you mm-hmm. can't predict whether a book will sell itself, but if you already see one is selling itself, you can magnify that. You mm-hmm. can capitalize on that. So, I've seen a lot of books that that's happened to. Um, Atlas Six is an example, for instance, and um, uh, Rage of Dragons and Senlin Ascends, and there's there's others. Um, so agents approached me, and at that point, I was like, "Well, it's been really successful, and I could just keep going along, or I could just see what happens." It doesn't cost you anything to get an agent. It doesn't cost you anything to find out. So I just picked the agent that I vibed with best and said, "Okay, why not? Let's try." 
Um, and then I think within 48 hours of taking it out, Tor UK had come back and had a uh, an offer on the table. Wow. And I really like Tor. I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of Tor as a publisher. I like the books that they put out. Um, and so I thought about it, and it was a really good offer, and I said yes. And uh, I have not regretted it. I had some initial, like... Um, trepidation that I, I just didn't know what the experience would be like. I like having control over things. I'm really anal retentive. I, I'm detail oriented. I like to have my fingers in uh -huh. and I didn't know how much of that I would lose. And I was worried about it. And I was worried about the editorial process. Like how much would they want to change? Would they not be happy with the book? Would they want me to rewrite parts of it? I didn't know. Hmm. Well, they didn't. <laughs> so oh. we changed maybe a few words, several that I wanted to change. And most of it was punctuation changes for their house style. Like some people like, four periods and an ellipsis at the end of the sentence. And some people like three and some people never use N dashes and only use M dashes. Every, every publisher has their own house style. Yeah. So, but as part of that acquisition, audio rights were part of that. So oh, okay. they, they basically had to buy my audio from me because oh, I'd already recorded sweet. it. So they bought it <laughs> like I had narrated it. And of course I got to keep everything I'd made beforehand when mm -hmm. I published it myself, but then it transitioned over to Macmillan. And then part of my agreement is also that I can be the narrator for any of my books, no questions asked, and here's my rate. Oh, because um, I do notice you have a book coming out in November, Bookshops mm -hmm. and Bone Dust, yep. published by oh. Tor and Macmillan Audio. Mm -hmm. And were you planning that second book before was, or, or did it was, was that an planning of this? I, I had I thought I would do it again and I had my basic plan for a book, which is not that book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, the book I but it is so I, I had a I had an idea for one. It was gonna be a cozy fantasy mystery set in the same world and it was gonna be really great. It was like fantasy murder she wrote. Mm -hmm. I still liked the concept. That's what when Tor acquired it, it was for two books. It was the book that I already had and they wanted one more from me. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, sure, because I already knew what I was going to write. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, it only took me a month to do the last one. No big deal, right? I even know yeah. what this one is. <laughs> and I wrote a 10,000-word outline, and I was so sure it was the right thing. And I wrote 30,000 words of it, and then I hated it. Mm. Just loathed it. And oh. so I then I restarted three more times until mm -hmm. I found the book that I wrote, mm -hmm. um, which was really horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and for me, it was, uh, there were, there was, there were, it was complicated because the first book I wrote in isolation just for me. And the second book I wrote knowing that people were interested in it and expected something. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I could not untangle for a while my trepidation and my horrible feelings about disappointing somebody with a book that maybe it wasn't what they wanted and my own feelings about whether the book was any good. And it took me three tries to figure out how to separate those feelings because I haven't had to contend with them before. And they were both awful, but they were a different kind of awful. <laughs> so eventually I separated that out, and which at some point I would have had to do. And as many people say, the second book is like the hardest book. It, was, it absolutely was. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I think I really went off the beaten track with that answer, but... No, not no. at all. And did the reader reactions, Travis, when you wrote the second one... Um, did you have kind of reader reactions that things that they'd reacted to in the first book that you thought mm, that I'm hearing this again and again and again they like how I blah 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 so when you're writing the second book did you find ways to give them more of what the things that they were looking for so I didn't really get um I didn't really have many people read the second one until it went to the publisher and I really only had people read the first one when it was all kind of done so I didn't do them kind of like as a de developmental thing where I was changing the book based on feedback as I was writing it on either book. No, 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 no. no. Did, did you get feedback from the first one that oh, kind the of changed? Yeah, how you would. There were certainly things that I worried about, which is part of what I what I fretted over because I knew people things that people did like about the first book, and I was like, well, if I don't have it in the second book, are they going to hate it? Right. Certainly not going to be about coffees and coffee shops because I don't want to write that for all eternity. You wrote that um, already. You know, does it have to have, you know, uh, you know, a, a little sapphic romance in it? Does it, what does it have to have? Mm -hmm. And eventually I just had to say, look, for me, it just has to have a relatable human experience that I had that I think maybe other people would relate to. Mm. And I have to like the characters and spending time with them. Mm -hmm. And that's what ultimately had to be important for me. Um, gotcha. so, 
And it took me a bit to kind of figure that out. But I definitely did worry that it wouldn't have things that people wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, will, I mean, I guess well, time will tell whether people like it or not. But so well, far, people, the response has been good. But <laughs> long may it continue. Yeah, people obviously love legends and lattes. I mean, I mentioned that it's up for a Nebula Award. For those who don't know, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association have these awards, and so it's up for Best Novel, and they're awarding that on Sunday. But it also was a finalist for the Oddies in Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's part of just, when I say crazy success, in a very, very wonderful, good way, mm-hmm. that you don't usually think of that happening. But even beyond that, you've got people doing fan art and and you've got I've, I've, your lapel pins and it looked like somebody had built something it wasn't lego but it was it kind of looked like lego that, oh that, i got a lego somebody made custom know, lego coffee set. shot yeah and they sent me they sent me a little kit of it which has professionally printed instructions uh, uh, people have had made tattoos and sculptures and miniatures uh, and just of scads uh, of art it's been really crazy somebody wrote a song Oh. Um, someone in their musical theater class wrote like musical theater songs for their lyrics writing class and sent me all the lyrics and it's nuts. Oh, wow. It's nuts. It's very humbling and it's a really nice feeling to know that anything you put out got like touched somebody in some way that they felt compelled to make yeah. something. It's just it's crazy. Oh. In a very good way. <laughs> it's a really, it's really nice. It's just, it's, mm-hmm. and it helps that it's a book about basically people being kind and like mm-hmm. doing the hard work and choosing kindness. And so if people relate to that, they're usually people who are interested in that. So mm-hmm. there's like a, like an automatic kind of feedback loop, I guess. So you mentioned these massive audiobooks you're narrating and then you're working on the novel and so how are you finding time to do both of these things um it's hard so um i just have to split my day so i i haven't taken i have i've never been able to take a pause to write i was always i wrote in the evening so what i would do is every evening after dinner i would come right back down to my booth where there's again no distractions and i would sit and i'd write a chapter and i do it until the book is done with no days off and that's how i have written so far (laughs) And that's what works for me. Um, I am attempting to, I've been doing a lot of work trying to tend to my schedule and reschedule things and pass off some future booked projects and to make more room for writing because the way that the last year and a half has gone is not really tenable. Mm. Um, Because just writing the book and shipping the book is not the only things that happen. There's book tours and podcasts and signings and other events that take time. Uh-huh. that I did not plan on at all, just even apart from writing them. And that's just not a, it's not a good balance. Uh-huh. So I've been doing a lot of work trying to get to the point where it is balanced. So like uh, last weekend was the second weekend that I've had in a really long time. <laughs> a really long time because I, I had to work to get back to being able to have weekends again. Oh. Well, and even when you've had weekends, you've been doing other things. I I saw you were – there was a Get Lit Festival, and I, I guess you lived yeah. near yeah, there. Yeah, I lived there, and, which helps. Okay. That does help. help. But I'm, I can picture the way this is going, that people will ask you to travel for their events. But, you know, and I wondered, have you have you been presenting about audiobooks, or has it all been and – and that wasn't even that. It was – weren't you like a player in a D&D game they had going it was or, it was a one shot, so it was the first time I played D and D since high school. Um, they were very kind, um, but it was just part of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, most of the stuff right now is often mostly book related, and audiobook is secondary um, as far as people ask me to do anything. Um, my audiobook was mostly just audiobook work. Because I saw schedule, get them done. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw on Friday, two days from now, as part of the Nebula conference, you're on a panel of authors. Growing through gaming. Yeah, I was surprised by that. <laughs> and, and by the way, if anybody wants to attend, that's an online event. And if you go to events.sfwa.org, you can sign up and you can, you know, actually attend the session that Travis will be in. Did, so how did that come about? They asked you or you 
I actually thought I unchecked the checkbox to make me available for panels because I felt way too much like an imposter being there. But I guess I didn't or they ignored it because they just sent me an email saying I was on that panel. So I'm on well, that panel. Somebody who's up for an award and has already was a finalist for the audience for the, the audio book. And there was some other book, Locust, that you were on their list. So you're wow. you're gaining so much attention and so much fan following. As an author, you're certainly not an imposter. So they're thrilled to have you, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, and I'm happy to help. I just felt I, 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 it's, I don't feel like an author. I feel like I just stumbled in the side door and that everybody's going to figure out that I don't belong here any day now. And... I'll just go right back to my audiobook cave. It's mostly how I feel about it. <laughs> well, that kind of answers one question I had of, do you have a big why of why you do what you do? And and maybe you do, but maybe it's just interconnected in a different way. Like a big why of why I wrote or? Yeah, why you, why, why you do both of these things because now you're narrating and you're writing. Mm-hmm. And, and not having a lot of outside time for anything else, apparently. Um, I mean, it's hard. I really like narrating. It's great. It's there's. It's really rewarding to take somebody else's work and be able to just add a little bit more to it, to you know, and, or to bring it to people who wouldn't otherwise experience it, um, and to be able to care about it and ideally uplift it in some way. It's really, really great. And you don't have to do all of the creative heavy lifting. You know, it's already been kind of excavated. You're just dusting a little bit more sand off of the bones. Um, writing is very different uh, because you have to do all of that heavy lifting. you got to dig the whole thing out of the ground. Um, but when you're done, if people are responding to it, they're responding to something that you put in there. That's yeah. all of you. Um, yeah. And I find that for me, writing has been really personal. I mean, the book, okay, so I wrote a book. I, I spent 20 years making video games into my 40s, and then I discovered that I wanted to do a different kind of job. So I retired from games, and I started doing audiobooks, and I discovered this amazing community of people that I didn't know that was there that was so diverse and wonderful, and it changed my life. So I wrote a book about somebody who does the same job into their 40s and then stops doing it, retires, and moves to another industry and discovers a whole community of amazing people they didn't know were there that you know are really essential to their life. So there's a lot of there's a lot of me and parallels and things that were important to me in the book, mm-hmm. um, which people related to because other people have those kinds of experiences. So the really rewarding thing is like you put something like that in a book, and then somebody comes back. And says, oh, wow, that meant something to me. It's like, it's this, um, it's really hard to articulate how connecting that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all of us kind of, I think, feel lonely in our lives in all sorts of ways. That we feel alone and that we're only experiencing the thing we're experiencing in isolation and other people don't fully understand it or see it. And so when you write a book and then that happens, it punctures that in a kind of a pretty profound way that is hard. It's hard to overstate how cool that is. Um, so while the work is much harder than narrating, it has, like, for me, it's been kind of like a higher reward. Mm-hmm. I would never give up narrating because narrating is schedulable and is not quite as stressful. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, and I can finish a project in a couple of days. It's great. But I kind of, now I don't think I can imagine not doing both because mm-hmm. it also helps that, um, as, as work, they're really interconnected. My, for me personally, narrating other people's books has been a really good way of highlighting what I like and what I don't like and what I think is important about writing for when I write. It just makes it crystal clear what I respond to and what I don't respond to. Uh And that's all work that I would have had to write God knows how many words to figure out. Uh And it feels like, I don't want to say a shortcut, but it's a, it's a certain kind of iteration that allows you to, to figure out things that you need to discover as a writer. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like going to a critique group, right? Where everybody reads their work and you're mm-hmm. talking about other people's work because not only is it exposing you to new ideas, it's also exposing you to bad work or mediocre work or amazing work or, or whatever. And all of those exposures are really important to refining your own voice and what you think is important. And so I think I've, I feel really fortunate that I 
have been an audiobook narrator because it made it easier to write. Yeah, and it probably rewired your brain. You it know, did. I, yeah, yeah, it I, absolutely I, I, did. I can feel it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that a lot of narrators would probably find that they know a lot more about their own voice and what they would put on the page mm -hmm. if they sat down to write a book mm -hmm. than they thought they knew. Yeah. It's just the finding the time. And that's where mm -hmm. I'm just in awe that you are mm -hmm. doing these massive books and yet you're finding time. Well, it helps that my book was only journey. like 65,000 words, you know, it's, it's not long. And I removed all the parts that were boring. <laughs> um, and, and the book is, it's effectively, it's a simple book. It's not a complicated book. And it, it has something to say, but it's not, it's not a, a thousand characters and, you know, five different POVs. And it doesn't have to be an epic. It's a, it's a story that tells its story and it gets done. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, when I tempered my ambition a lot, I was actually able to get something done. And I think small things can still have value. It's like the Tetris example that I that you mentioned that I'd mentioned earlier. Yeah. Tetris is a really simple game. Any first year like programming student can make Tetris because it's not that complicated, but it can be executed well. And it's one of the biggest games in all of history and everybody can play it and everybody understands it. And it's hard to overstate how much value it has as a thing. But it didn't have to have a team of thousands working across multiple countries for five years to create and billions <laughs> of dollars, but it still has value. So mm -hmm. I think that you can look at your ambitions and what you want to do and you can say, I can do something small that has value that I can complete. Mm -hmm. That's gold right there. It is. Yeah. And I want to tell our audience that we are coming up on the end of our time with Travis. So definitely if you want to chime in on the conversation, raise your hand and we'll get you on stage. Travis, I have uh, what I like to call the pit stop hot seat, and it's mm -hmm. a question that you're not expecting. Okay. And I would like to know, if you went into the witness protection plan, what identity would you like to assume? Oh, clearly a bookseller. <laughs> well, that was easy. It was easy. Yeah, I would be a bookseller. Absolutely. Well, then I'm, I'll ask you another question. What is your most trivial, useless, or flat-out counterproductive superpower? Wow. Um, remembering commercial jingles from the 80s? <laughs> That's pretty good. Why, why just the 80s? Why specifically that decade? I think it's like it's the I was I was a kid and I watch, you know, you watch TV and there was so much kid marketing and so many little jingles like the Cabbage Patch Kids theme song. Why do I know this? I really don't want to. If I could evict it from my brain, I absolutely would. But I heard it enough, and it's stuck there now. I, I fortunately don't know it, but I'm thinking if you sang it, I would know it, and no. then it would become an earworm Refuse. that I, I wouldn't be able like to eradicate. It feels like that would be an act of aggression. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you were talking a little bit about putting things together. Do you have any kind of assistant or anybody helping you? I mean, because narration is a solo thing and writing is a solo thing. Nope. <laughs> I think about it every once in a while. The real thing. So um, one thing that happens after you release a book is people start asking you to blurb books. Uh -huh. um, can I send you an arc and get a blurb? And I must have been asked 20 times. And it's really hard to say no, but you very quickly have to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Crafting a polite no to that kind of question is incredibly hard and I find myself, it's just very taxing because I want to be really kind and give an infinite time. You know, sure, I would absolutely do it, but it's not possible. So I think, I think that a lot of people get assistance just to be able to answer all their emails that say no. I haven't, I haven't folded and done it yet though. But it sounds like it's something in your future, like some kind of VA perhaps who could tend to that and maybe tend to scheduling requests at these literary festivals or panels where people are wanting you to participate and you can't do all of them. I have thought about it because the, the emails are just, it's just a lot of emailing. There's a lot of administrative and calendar work of just uh -huh. making sure that everything gets done and that you don't forget things. I mean, I, once upon a time, people could ask me to do something. It's like, Hey, could you do this for next month? And I would just remember. And those uh -huh. days are long gone. 
Mm. Anytime anybody asks me for anything, it goes on the calendar immediately or I guarantee we'll forget because it's just I'm like okay. super saturated with information at this point. Well, and with requests and they're only going to continue and the more books you release and the greater your fan base grows in both places where you live, both as a narrator and as an author, you're only going to get more of this kind of stuff. Well, I'm, and we'll, we'll be able we'll to see. say we we'll need see. When. It might slope off. <laughs> you know, it's quite possible it will slope off, and I can, you know, slide back into obscurity. That would be that would be fine too. Um, I, it, it's been a really cool year, but I don't. I will be just fine if it if it doesn't persist into the future. It's okay. Um, who knows? This book may come out, and nobody will read it, and everybody will forget, and it'll be fine, um, or not. I mean, if you have people making Lego sets of your coffee shop interior, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> high-level fan. I mean, that's not somebody who's just casually well, interested in what you did and read this book. That is somebody who is your devout follower now. Well, and the thing is, if people you know, do those sorts of things, you don't want to like displace that connection. You want to answer that with kindness and you know, thought. Because I, I, I just don't ever want to be in a position where I feel like I'm ignoring people who are genuinely, you know, gesturing genuinely like that. So mm-hmm. I would kind of hate to defer that and pass that off to somebody else, you know, somebody sending thank yous on your behalf. That's the sort of thing I feel like. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I have a hard time with it. I have a hard time with that. Well, but somebody who could maybe gather them up and say, like, yeah. you know, here are your requests for blurbs. Here are requests yep. for – and this is how I handled the blurbs. This is how I think you want the calendars handled. Yeah. And here yeah. are some people you probably want to respond to personally. Yeah. Just somebody who divides it all up for you and sorts it and categorizes it so it it's something so manageable and meaningful. I try to imagine somebody else reading my email. It's so weird. It's yeah. so weird. Can you imagine just giving somebody else access to your email inbox and saying, okay, just, just make sense of this for me, okay? <laughs> well, you could set up rules to auto-forward certain yeah. types of things, but then, of course, figuring out that rule takes some time, too. So Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Right now, I'm winging it, but, you know, I can't say it wouldn't be nice to have a certain amount of administrative stuff taken care of, just on all fronts, you know. <laughs> scheduling is a thing. I do a lot of scheduling. Do you have advice that you could share with other people who want to expand their horizon beyond narration? And I don't mean necessarily writing a book, but just doing something else beyond being in their booth every day. I mean, I guess it just depends on if you want to do it for fun or as a business. Um, I was originally just doing this for fun, but I was doing it for fun in a professional way. (laughs) Um, but that's how I've kind of stumbled into a lot of my jobs. Like I the same thing with narration. When I switched to narration, it was the same thing. It was something I pursued because I enjoyed it, but I tried to do it in a professional way. And eventually, you know, just time and attention, and then it becomes something else. I'm, I'm like a serial hobbyist. I love trying things out and getting expertise and learning about things. So just doing that in general and cultivating that it has a habit is, is I think, great. If you've got something you enjoy doing, then, then, then just do it. And um, any information, you can treat it as a, as a learned skill where you're constantly learning more about how to do it and how to do it well and the industry that it's in, if there is one. And uh, then maybe at some point it develops into a thing that you want to pursue. Um, it's like watching fruit grow, you know, you like tend it. And if it gets big enough, like, oh, maybe I want to pick this. I don't know. Or, you know, or not. <laughs> but it sounds like it, the key and the base of it all is to do what you enjoy. Do because you, you don't yeah. have to make money from it. It could be just something you enjoy. Yeah. And, it and could the, be the, some the, other creative pursuit. The balance switches when you make it a job. So, you know, you might not want to. You know, uh, hobbies, you know, aren't the same once you make them your livelihood. So... I think hobbies still have value as hobbies. <laughs> we we have a couple of comments from the audience. Regina Hopper would like to know, she says, your positive attitude is so great. I wonder if you can talk about what made you think you could be successful on ACX. Um, so initially, I really just did it on a lark. So I... Um, 
I had done some test recordings. I think I did some stuff from LibriVox just to see if I liked it. And I just came across ACX, and I and I had listened to enough audiobooks of various quality that I thought I could do it. And I just thought it would be fun to try, I just to even learn about it. And and I think that as far as believing that I could do it, um, you get the audition, you produce the book, and you listen back, and you just decide, you know, can I gauge the quality of this versus other things? Um, I think that's a really vague answer. I'm going to try and give a better one. Um, I think one skill that I actually have that I think is a useful skill is uh, an ability to to judge um, relative relative quality of things and to break it down into why I like something or why I don't like something, which maybe is even further reduced to just being I have I, I understand how my taste functions. Like I can listen to something and listen to something else, and I can say, here are the difference between these things, and here's why, and here's why I respond well to this thing versus this thing, which I think as a, just a baseline ability to cultivate is the ability to compare and break down and understand why two things are different and why you might value one thing over another. It's applicable to everything, and it's a key to the ability to iterate and decide how to get better at doing something. Um, and I thought I could do that in audio. And, and then I went about doing it, and I can kind of track for myself having done that over time, and I can articulate the kinds of things I learned and why I learned them and why I chose to do them. So that just sort of intentional um, assessment, self-assessment, I think, maybe. I, again, I'm not sure if that's the right answer for this. It feels like there's a couple of ways I could have answered it. <laughs> And Christine Mendel says she can't say hello as she's walking in New York City, which we all know is a dangerous thing in <laughs> and of itself. And But she's really enjoying listening to you, and she thinks she'd be dangerously distracted in the bike and car traffic. But it's been really humorous, informative, and enjoyable conversation, and she wants you to know you are an inspiration, Travis. Well, thank you very much. That's really sweet. And Regina says that was a great answer. Very helpful. <laughs> Mosh Pitt wants to know what genre doesn't usually have cozy books. Would you like to see? Would you Would you like to see produce some cozy books? I mean, I think you can do cozy just about anything. I could think you could do cozy horror. Honestly, you could do cozy scary stories, um, and I think you could do cozy sci-fi. Really, honestly, I think you can make anything cozy when it when it's really about. So ultimately, I think cozy breaks down to. Um, generally being about like human scale, like personal concerns, ultimately having a happy ending in the same way that most, you know, romance needs to have the happily ever after. Um, mm -hmm. and that the, there's an element of comfort to it in either relatable surroundings or events or, or, um, or activities that allow you to feel, I, I don't know, just to, to, to let your, to let your, uh, your, your pulse drop, um, the I mean, fixer upper is cozy right the the show fixer upper is cozy uh great british bake-off is cozy um but i think you could do that in all kinds of genres but i would say sci-fi sci and horror are good candidates and and it's interesting you say that because cozy <clears throat> cozy excuse me cozy mystery lovers are really looking for clean and wholesome i mean if you have any kind of curse words in it they'll take off points and mm -hmm. and you know leave you nasty audible reviews and so I always think of sci-fi and horror as being full of curse words. And, and, and also be. cozy mysteries, you know, you come across the dead body. We don't actually see it happen, and we don't get a description mm -hmm. of how gory it actually is. And, and there again, I think what I think of sci-fi, I think of it being more gritty and... yeah. You know, and that's so it surprises. It's a I think there's a lot think you can do with way. tone. I think there's a lot you can do with tone. For instance, Legends and Latte has got a few f bombs in it, and the sequel has at least sixteen. Um, because uh, the, one of the main one of the main characters is she runs a bookstore, and she's just incredibly foul mouthed. Um, and but it it's still cozy. <laughs> Because I know lots of really lovely, wonderful people that all swear like sailors. It's, I don't yeah. think the two are mutually exclusive. I agree with you that cozy mystery as a genre has kind of like calcified its expectations. But I think mm -hmm. that's what's cool about other genres is that those expectations have not been solidified yet. You can do whatever you want. And people who traditionally enjoy those genres and might want something a little softer right now have different expectations. So... Um, 
I think that's one of the cool opportunities about writing something new or smashing two new things together is that you get to either set some of the expectations or ignore them entirely. That really hits on something very, very profound, Travis, because before I even started narrating, say, romance novels, I didn't realize that there were rules. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't occur to me. I thought people just go ahead and they write whatever they want to. You know, it's their book, go ahead. But then you see that there's this whole structure of rules. Mm-hmm. So and good I, for you. I think they can almost always be broken. You just have to yeah, be, yeah. you just have to break them in a way that people enjoy. <laughs> Well, there's the art that you've obviously got. (laughs) Clearly, there are a lot more people enjoying your work than hating on it. I mean, think about, I'm going to bring up Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy is almost cozy science fiction. It's about a found family of misfits and goobers. And it's honestly, I mean, James Gunn writes stuff that's it's profane and gory and weird, but it's also like charming and heartwarming. (laughs) And I think part of the reason that it's successful is because it's breaking rules in ways that people enjoy. It's taking things that people don't expect and they're putting them together. And so it feels novel, but it's also relatable and understandable. You understand these component parts, but you delight in seeing them put together in this new way that you haven't seen. Right. And you said, you know, about um, discernment or whatever that, you know, you very much know what you like and what you didn't like and, and all those. And it's all coming together in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's magic. It feels like it. It's just. It also feels like it's the product of just like a, a million iterations over years, yeah. right? It's just yeah. this slow accumulation of decisions that ultimately results in something. Well, in this case, accidentally, you know, the the the, the concept for this book was a joke. It was a joke <laughs> in my Discord. <laughs> The joke was that um, I was reading something predictably high stakes with some snarky antagonist. And I was like, what I really want to read is a Hallmark movie set in a fantasy novel. That's just what I want right now because I just want to feel good at the end. And I like narrating fantasy, but that's just that's what I wanted. And so I made the joke that I would write a book about this dwarven dwarven executive that goes back to save her dad's failing mine, you know, in podunk dwarf land. And she meets all the quirky denizens and she's really kind of upset about it. And, but also she runs into this really handsome guy wearing a sweater and maybe he makes cookies, you know, and obviously that's not what I wrote, but that was the joke. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) so ultimately it's kind of accidental, but it's just a collision of things. Yeah. But you've been taking notes. That's, that's what I'm, I've received from hearing to you talk. You know, you have, you've done so much stuff, but you have kind of, found out what works for you and yeah. take a note and with all these iterations and you are you're taking note and then you're, you're bringing that making art out of that and did you create a, a brand new genre travis i don't i think this genre existed i think that mm-hmm. um i don't think i thought of it as such when i was writing it mm-hmm. i think that the genre i think terry pratchett basically wrote this kind of fiction in a lot of ways he used a fantasy world to talk about like human things like the post office or, you know, what it was like to actually be a police officer or whatever. He wasn't writing about fantasy wars and demons taking over the world. He was writing about human concerns using fantasy to illustrate that in the same way that sci-fi often you think about Star Trek. It's using like sci-fi to talk about these big ideas about the future and society and progress and, you know, mm-hmm. culture. And yeah. I think Terry Pratchett did that to talk about human things. And um, I think you look at stuff like, you know, Howl's Moving Castle. Again, I think this stuff existed. I think that the name Cozy Fantasy just got mashed together. And I happened to be in the in the region <laughs> when that <laughs> happened. So I don't think I really invented anything. I, I think that Legends and Lattes was, if I'm going to give myself credit for anything, it's that I think it was well targeted and well articulated what exactly you were going to get. So that mm-hmm. if you look at the book and you see the cover and you read the tagline, you're like, oh, that's what that is. And then when you open the book and you read it, it's exactly the same thing as what you expected it was going to be, which is worth a lot if you're trying to get somebody to pick something up. So I think I did that well. Yes. Um, But as far as any of the rest of it, it's just the right place in the right time. So there wasn't much marketing involved in all of this. No, I didn't really do marketing because everybody told me it didn't work. Um, and also I didn't really, ex- again, I didn't really expect anything. So, um, when I first, uh, got the cover artwork, I just posted it on Twitter because I thought it was cool and somebody tweeted around and then Shauna McGuire saw it and said, oh, this looks great. And she has a boatload of followers. 
she'd never read the book, but it mm -hmm. gave it like a big boost of like interest because the cover really did articulate the concept of the book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that cover is wonderful. It reminds me of the troll dolls of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it crosses a lot of things. So D&D is a big thing right now. People watch Critical Role. It's a very kind of like social public thing that people do. It also doesn't cost that much money. People can do it together and connect to each other. But you also have nostalgia for that from people who are not from are not doing that now, but played it when they were kids. And then you've got gaming, you've got World of Warcraft and Blizzard and this sort of, uh, there's so many angles that people come in at this that it can, that you get kind of like a nexus of people who wouldn't necessarily read the same thing. It's really mind blowing, the whole thing. You're very, very clever. I don't know about that, but. No, you are, you are. I get to you talk are. in retrospect about all of this now so I can make it sound that way. <laughs> No, all, no, no, no. Uh -uh. All the uh, the fan reviews and ratings and the awards, I think we can say we have evidence. You're very <laughs> clever. Mm -hmm. In a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. In a nice way. Because it's all heart. Your, your cleverness is coming across to me. As, is, it's coming from the heart, coming from the soul. And genuine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very nice of you. That's the truth. <laughs> You weren't it. <laughs> and on that happy note, I see we're already running over the hour. So I think it's probably time for everybody to get back on the road and we'll conclude today's pit stop. I want you to know the recording will be available on Clubhouse later today. And in the near future, I'll post a transcript and the recording on narratorsroadmap.com. And who's the guest tomorrow on your Narrator Uplift show? Iris McElroy from Penguin Random House. Oh, that's going to be excellent. Mm -hmm. I think people will be lined up for that. Travis, I'm really excited about your being a finalist in the Nebula Awards, and I'm be hoping that you win. Do you have any final words or anything else you want to pass on to people? Well, just thank you so much for showing up. Um, I, I, I just really appreciate it, and uh, I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Well, I thank you so much, and I hope everyone will join us in a couple of weeks on May 24th, because that day, musician, business coach, and audiobook narrator Jennifer Jill Araya will be here with us on Pit Stop. And in the meantime, I hope you find joy in every journey and live the life of your dreams. Thanks again, Travis, for this delightful and wonderful conversation. And thanks to Anne for your excellent observations and support. And thanks to all of you in the audience who've spent time with us this afternoon. I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you soon. Bye.